Hello again. <clears throat> so the other morning, I was praying. Can you imagine that? That's, you know, something I do. Um, I was praying the other morning, and I thought I knew what I was going to talk about this Sunday, you know, because we plan a little ways in advance. And I kind of had an idea in my head of what I was going to do, and I was pretty excited about it. But that one particular morning while I was praying, the Lord just hit on a real theme for me. And so many things just started to fall in place around this one particular subject of running. So I thought, well, I think the Lord would rather have me talk about this this time, and maybe we'll do that another time. So we're going to do like a meditation, like a devotional about the theme of running. And we're going to start from these verses here, which are really familiar, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Running is a metaphor that Paul uses a lot in his writing in the New Testament. There are many, many verses, and I thought about using more of them, but they're all really familiar because they're cool. They make a really good point. I wondered, because he's not specific, what kind of race is Paul talking about when he's talking about running? There's lots of different kinds of races. You don't have to be a runner to know that. Uh, there are short races, like the 100-meter dash. If you think about this race, if you've been to any track meets, it's really entertaining to watch. Kids run the 100-meter dash. Even if it's not your kid, I like to go sit in the bleachers and watch it. It's a really entertaining race. Um, the people that run this race, of course, they have to train. They have to be disciplined. But their race itself doesn't require endurance, right? It's this short burst of tremendous effort and energy. But it doesn't require endurance to run. If you think about that in comparison to a long, long race, like a marathon, these things are very different. The training is entirely different and it is definitely not as entertaining to watch someone run 26.2 miles as it is to watch them run 100 meters. You actually can't watch them run their marathon unless you just run alongside them. Um, it's not spectacular, and it's really not glamorous to watch someone run that long. It doesn't look impressive. If you were to think of these two races in, say, like a three-second snapshot, and you put those two snapshots side by side. So you saw someone running 100 meters, just three seconds of it. You'd think, wow, that person is really doing something. Like, they're really up to something, and that's impressive. And if you saw the three seconds of someone running a marathon, you would just think, oh, that person's out for a jog. Maybe they're out of shape, or like, they're just not really doing anything. That's not really all that impressive. But what you don't see is that that person just jogging is on this incredibly long race. And what they're doing is this spectacular feat of mental and physical endurance that if you could really see it, is so incredibly impressive. Think about when the marathoner starts her race, she can't even see the finish line. She can't see any further than up around the bend. 
She doesn't know all of the obstacles that lay ahead of her. And when you're running a marathon, you have so much time to let your thoughts get out of control. You have so much time to think, to think about, can I even finish this? Am I going to be able to make it through? Is the pain that I am in as I run this race even worth trying to finish? These are all things that are possible to think when you're running a really long race. It can get tough. So this corresponds to so many different things in our lives. That's why it's a great metaphor. Some of us as believers are going to run really impressive 100-meter dashes with the Lord and by his power. And think of these as like David slaying the giant type of moments, like revivals and mass healings and evangelical events. And we'll even run these 100-meter dashes in our personal lives. Maybe you're up against some specific thing, and you start the race, and you can see the finish, and everything goes, and you have this big breakthrough. And you finish that 100-meter dash, and you're just like, wow, that was such a mountaintop moment. And those things are going to happen for us, and they're really exciting And something I've noticed as I've spent more time in ministry and more time talking with people is I hear those situations. I hear the 100-meter dash moments, and those are awesome and exciting. Most frequently, I hear the marathon moments. I hear the long race moments like, hey, I thought I had this thing whipped, but it's come back, and I'm fighting again. I'm in the fight again. Or I've just been struggling with this thing and I don't know how to get around it. And, but the Lord is still being glorified in my life, even while I'm running this really long race. And it's more these situations where you come alongside someone and you just go with them as they go through this long, long marathon race. And I think we should be encouraged in that. I don't think it always has to be downer and struggle. Something important to remember is that when you do run this spectacular 100-meter dash, never forget that you are still called to the marathon. Just because you run that and you finish it doesn't mean you're finished. We're all called to the marathon, and the marathon is not dependent on any special calling or anointing or gifting. It is for everyone. We all run it. It's the race of every Christian until we go home, and we've all been equipped to run and finish this race well. Our marathon that we run as Christians for our whole lives is the continual conforming of our character to the likeness of Jesus. This marathon that we run, we increasingly look more and more like him. And when we get to the end, we're not him, but we're made like him because of what he did for us. It's really cool. So we're all called to this marathon, and it often does not feel glamorous, right? It often doesn't feel spectacular what we're doing. It just feels like we are running through water or some sort of similar situation. But the thing is that the quality of our marathon and being a reflection of Jesus is determined by these everyday moments of our lives, just the everyday things that we do. When we wake up, when we go to work, when we go out for groceries, when we spend time with our friends, when we go out to dinner, when we come here. For church, etc. All of these little moments is how our marathon is built. All of these things that slip past our notice as really uninteresting and mundane. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about 
As those who walk in wisdom, we have to redeem the time for the days are evil. And I wonder if part of redeeming the time is recognizing that our days are limited and that they are sacred. To redeem something is to take it back. So I wonder if that's taking back our days from the rat race, from what the world says that this, 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 this doesn't matter. We take it back and realize that it's limited and yes, that it's all important and that it's all sacred. And that as we live our lives unto the Lord, it all has meaning and it all has purpose. I'm running my marathon and today's moments will contribute to it. Just changing our perspective and thinking more like that can change how we behave and how we live our lives. You don't necessarily have to troubleshoot everything you do. You can just have your thinking transformed and it will change how you live. So back to the race metaphor. I want to make a few applications um, that we can draw out from looking at our lives as this marathon. And I'm going to correspond them to faith, hope, and love. So first of all, if you're running a marathon, you have to know the course. And Kira's not here right now, but um, so much of... She's just running a 5K. That's her race. It's 3.1 miles. So much of that is knowing the course. Like, she'll get a map, and it'll show her where she's supposed to run. And if she doesn't follow the course, then she'll be disqualified. Um, Paul says here in verse 26 that he doesn't run aimlessly. Uh, He knows the course. When you're running a marathon, you can't see the finish line from where you start. You don't see all of the obstacles and the challenges that you're going to face as you run. And you also don't see the amazing graces that the Lord is going to give you to make it past those obstacles. So you don't see the good things. You don't see the bad things. You just know there's stuff up there. And if you don't know the course, you're going to get lost and you're not going to make it to the finish. You're going to drift like what Tab talked about. When you don't steer, you just get off course. So we've got a problem here, right? We can't know the course in the physical because we don't know the future. We're locked right here into the present. We're locked into what we know from the past. So we need something here. To know the course is to run by faith. Faith shows us the course. Faith is the key to knowing it. By faith, we can be sure that even though the course is unseen, and even though there's all of these things that we don't know and the unexpected, that we will arrive at the finish line. We can know by faith that our race won't be in vain. And by God's spirit and power, we will stay on the course and we will be able to finish the race. And besides, we do not walk by our physical sight anyway. The word tells us that we walk by faith. We don't need to know everything because we have faith. I feel like this goes back so much to perceiving reality and identity in its truest sense which is where I finished off talking in Ephesians, is knowing reality and identity in its truest sense. Our reality is that heaven and earth are one. There's a realm unseen by our physical eyes that plays a part in everything that we experience. And Jesus is ruling and reigning over both heaven and earth. He rules over both realms, and we are in partnership with him in that. A new creation has already begun. It's already burst forth right here on earth, and we get to participate in that. That helps us stay on course, focusing on that and maintaining that perspective. Our identities, how do you see yourself? 
You are more than just a physical body. You're primarily a spirit. You have a physical body that you inhabit. We're spirit and we're ruling and reigning in that heavenly realm with Jesus. You are a new creation and who you were has died. You are not becoming someone different. You are increasingly acting as you truly are. That is your identity. And through Jesus' victory and the Holy Spirit, you can manifest heaven wherever you are on earth. Because you are that walking, living temple everywhere you go. Living life's mundane days with a spiritual awareness is so important for us as we run our marathon. And as I was thinking about this, I could not help but think about Carol Cole. Because she is someone who I have seen live her life this way over and over again. And so many moments I have been like, how does she do that? (laughs) This woman lives with a constant spiritual awareness. She is just awake. And she does life in such a way where she brings heaven on earth. And sometimes I don't know that she even knows she's doing it. (laughs) Like she... She's had her mind so transformed. She's just available for those moments. And I've watched her just speak heaven into someone, like in a moment where, you know, I'm just thinking about 500 other things. And she's just in tune and ready to respond. And that's always been such an inspiration and encouragement to me to see someone live their life so aware of the presence of the Lord and the spiritual realm and the possibilities of all that reality. So that is faith. Now, if we're going to run a marathon, we've got to have hope too. You have to have the fuel to finish your really long race. If you've ever seen um, snippets from a marathon, have you seen those people that are like running along and they just collapse? Like they start to kind of like go sideways and they just go down and they literally cannot stand up anymore. Um, They've run out of fuel completely. Maybe they're even right in front of the finish line. Like they can see the finish line and they just collapse and can't get up. The machinery of their body has quit. It's like a car that's run out of gas. And fuel corresponds to hope. The danger of mental collapse on our marathon is a real thing. The danger of disappointment and bitterness can cause us to fall down and not be able to finish. And the race is long. We can begin to wonder if it's worth it and if we can go on. But first Peter says something really important. He says that we've been given new birth into a living hope through Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. He has gone before us and we're going to be made like him. He says that he's given us living hope by what he did. He's gone to prepare this place for us, and he's going to come back and take us to be with him so that where he is, there we will be also. All promises and things that he has said to us that we can put our hope in and we can see our guarantee in that. Our anchor is already there. It's already there holding fast, and we're connected to it. The anchor isn't affected by all of the conditions that we encounter as we run our race. It is firm and secure. And if you lose connection with that hope, your endurance is going to fade. If you lose connection with your guarantee, 
and your destiny in Jesus, you'll collapse along the way. And if you choose to put your hope in corruptible things, the things of earth, that is not going to sustain you either. No matter how good they look, no matter how sure they seem, they're all subject to corruption and decay. That is what this earth is all about. And they're going to leave you empty. They're going to leave you bitter. You have to have your hope with Jesus and his promises and your eternal destiny and your inheritance. And that is going to sustain you as you run your race. The last part I want to touch on, well, the second to last, is love. Love is essential in our marathon. Um, It's the love of one another. We have the love of the Lord, and that sustains us. And we have the love of one another. We have our community. We have our family. And the body of Christ is so important. Each other, as we run our race, we have to depend on each other. We can't do this in isolation. Apart from our brothers and sisters, it's impossible. Love is a tremendous asset in our race. And um, while we were traveling down to Missouri to see my family, we listened, obviously, to a lot of music and podcasts and stuff. And while we were driving, I listened to a podcast about the breaking of the four-minute mile. And I just found so much spiritual significance in the story of how this happened. It's incredible. It's a really neat piece of history if you go look it up. It's, there's so much cool story around this. Um, so the breaking of the four-minute mile was thought to be impossible. People thought that the human body just wasn't capable of being able to run that fast for that long. But it was accomplished on May 5th, 1954, by a man named Roger Bannister. He's British. Soon you'll hear his voice on this video. It's just fantastic. He has a great accent. And uh, he did this. Of course, he did a lot of training, and he did a lot of scientific research. He took a different approaches than other people had taken. But one really important part of Bannister's strategy was to use pace setters. So these pace setters were Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher. What a pace setter is, it's another world-class athlete. And they run a section of the race with the main runner according to a specific pace. So the first guy that would set the pace, he, he runs just according to time. They disregard all the other runners and everything else. They just know exactly how to run this lap at this speed. And then the second one comes up and does the same thing for the section of his race. And this is all so that the main runner runs according to a pace so that he goes fast enough to get the correct time, but that he doesn't expend too much energy and not be able to finish the race on time. And they were integral in him accomplishing this amazing feat, the breaking of the four-minute mile. And I actually found a video of it, and it's really cool. Try to listen to um, his... He talks. This is, the, this is a recording of the actual race. And um, the runner, Bannister, he narrates it. And try to listen to what he says, because it's really significant. I don't know if I'm supposed to switch to the next slide or if you guys are going to do that. As the gun fired... Chris Brasher went into the lead and I slipped in effortlessly behind him, feeling tremendously full of, full of running. 
My legs seemed to meet no resistance at all, almost as if impelled by an unknown force. We seemed to be going so slowly. Impatiently, I shouted faster, but Brasher kept his head and didn't change the pace. until I heard the first lap time, 57.5 seconds. In the excitement, my knowledge of pace had deserted me. Brescia could have run the first quarter in 55 seconds without my realizing it, because I felt so full of running. But I should have had to pay for it later. Instead, he had made success possible. At one and a half laps, I was still worrying about the pace. A voice shouting, relax, penetrated to me above the noise of the crowd. I learned afterwards it was Stamford's. Unconsciously, I obeyed. If the speed was wrong, it was too late to do anything about it. So why worry? the half mile passed in one minute 58 seconds. I was relaxing so much that my mind seemed almost detached from my body. It was incredible that we could run at this speed without strain. I was barely aware of the fact that Chris Chataway was now going into the lead. was still barely perceptible. The time was 3 minutes 0.7 seconds and by now the crowd was roaring. A 4 minute mile was possible. Somehow, to do it, I had to run the last lap in 59 seconds. Chataway led round the next bend and then I pounced past him at the beginning of the back straight, 300 yards from the finish. I had a moment of mixed joy and anguish when my mind took over. It raced well ahead of my body and drew me compellingly forward. I felt that the moment of a lifetime had come. Those last few seconds seemed never ending. The faint line of the finishing tape stood ahead as a haven of peace after the struggle. 
I leapt at the cake like a man taking his last spring to save himself from the chasm that threatens to engulf him. My effort was over, and I collapsed almost unconscious with an arm on either side of me. It was only then that the real pain overtook me. I knew I had done it before I even heard the pain. I felt as if I was too close to the fall. I just thought that was so cool. And I know it's not a marathon, it's just a mile, but there's so much there. He had to rely on those pace setters. And if you heard him say, I kept saying, faster, faster. He's yelling, like he's running and expending all this energy. And he's yelling at the person in front of him to go faster. But the person in front of him, he said he kept his head. He knew the pace. And uh, they would have had to pay for it if he would have run too fast. And it's because these pace setters were able to run with wisdom. Because they had objectivity in that moment. As human beings, we have the incredible ability to be totally immersed in our experience. To be so subjective that like when things happen to us, it's just like the only thing in the world. And in some ways, that's amazing that we're able to do that. In other ways, we need people to come alongside us when we're in the depth of something. Whether it's good or bad, when we're overwhelmed by things in life, we need our fellow runners to come alongside us, those pace setters to objectively speak into our lives and help us run a certain pace when our minds are screaming, go faster, go faster. We need someone to yell at us from the sidelines and say, you need to relax. Just like his coach did. He said he heard someone shouting relax and it penetrated somehow. That was his coach from the sideline. So these runners that he ran with, he had to trust them. He had to rely on them. Um, he had to trust that they had his best interests in mind and that they were going to finish, help him to finish the course. They were able to help him run with wisdom. So in closing, I'm going to just sum up from Ecclesiastes. And that is a fascinating book. Um, it's a quick read. It's not super long. And it's, it's kind of the, um, it corresponds to Proverbs. Proverbs is all of this awesome wisdom and ways to live your life. And Ecclesiastes is like, hey, but wait a second. Like you can read all the books in the world and be wise, but still there's something else to life. Um, it has a tremendous message of wisdom for how we should run our races. So the teacher in, um, a book of Ecclesiastes, he begins and he ends his teaching with this one central theme. He says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Our English word meaningless doesn't totally capture what he is saying here. We just talked for 20 minutes about how our lives are not meaningless, how the moments of our lives are really important. So what does this mean? Meaningless in our English translation is actually the Hebrew word hevel. Which literally, literally, it means smoke or vapor. And it's being used in Ecclesiastes as a metaphor. Our lives are temporary and they're fleeting. Like a wisp of smoke or a vapor. We're like the grass of the field that gets scorched, right? And not only that, but also our lives are enigmatic. They're like an enigma. They're like a paradox. Like smoke... It looks like it's solid and things in our lives, our lives look like they're solid and concrete. But when you try to hang on to them, when you try to grasp for smoke, 
When you try to hold on to the things in your life and maintain control of everything, you find that it just disappears. It dissolves. It's enigmatic. There's nothing actually solid there for you to hang on to. So we have all these beautiful and good, amazing things in our lives, but just as we're grasping at them, just as we think that we're in control, tragedy of the unplanned can strike. So many things, no matter what, are still outside of our control in our lives as we run our races. The space and the time that we inhabit here on earth is unstable. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes likens trying to grasp at these things like chasing after the wind, something that's fruitless. So ultimately, he talks about, well, then what should we do? What should our response be? Should we live these hedonistic lives and just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? He says, no, that's Hevel too. That's also meaningless. So be a wise person and live your life with wisdom. And ultimately, we're going to be better off if we live our lives with wisdom. And he says that we're better off in our race if we live by wisdom. But ultimately, the wise and the foolish are both subject to time and death. They both have the same end here on earth. So that's Hevel too. Um, not meaningless, but it's an enigma. Even with wisdom, things sometimes don't go as we think that they should. And there's this one point where Ecclesiastes says that the race isn't always to the swift. So when you're in a race and there's one person who's seated better than someone else, they are the most swift. You think the race is certainly going to go to the one who's best prepared and has the most talent and has proven themselves. But Ecclesiastes says that's not always true. The race doesn't always go to the swift, even when it looks like all the conditions and the preparations are in our favor. There's an unexpected outcome. So what's the way forward? That's kind of a real downer, huh? Like there's been times where I've read Ecclesiastes and I'm like, what am I supposed to be taking from this book? (laughs) I do not understand. So he mentions the way forward. There's a few points he makes. The way forward is to accept, is to accept that things are outside of your control. That even if you are trying to entertain the devices that you have control over things, Ultimately, you have to accept that there are things outside of your control. He tells us to fear God and to obey his commands. And lastly, he says to recognize the gift of God. That's the answer to all of this enigmatic, paradoxical, grasping at smoke. Recognize the gift of God. That's what I want to highlight. So different times when things are a real bummer in Ecclesiastes, the teacher talks about this gift of God. And he relates it to the enjoyment of very simple things. He uses examples like friendship. He says you can do no better than to enjoy your friends that you love. He uses examples like family, um, a good meal, just the gift of God to sit and enjoy a meal that is wonderful, to enjoy the company of people, and a sunny day to enjoy the beauty of nature. None of these things are a guarantee. This is the thing. It's none of it's guaranteed. None of us are guaranteed any of that. But when we see these simple moments of our marathon marathons as a sacred gift that is unwarranted, we are freed to enjoy them in the present as we experience them rather than just living in our minds about how things should be. Well, this is all wrong. Things should be this way. 
When we just receive things as a gift from the Lord, even the simple things, it frees us from that captivity to our own thinking about how everything should be. And besides the way in the final analysis, the way that you think things should be is Hevel too. You don't know. (laughs) There's so many unforeseen things. You just think, well, if it could be this way, you have no idea how that's going to affect your life and everything around you. So all of that is Hevel too. What we do is we enjoy the gift of God in the present, those simple things. And that should really encourage us to find joy like children. That's how children experience life, as they're just present and they're enjoying whatever little thing is happening to them right now. And it's precious. My dog does that, and I love that about her. She's so simple. To see the mundane and the everyday in our marathon as a sacred gift. And to remember that those steps that look slow and they look really unimpressive in that little snapshot, that is where the quality of our lives is determined. And that is where we'll also find so much joy if we'll just take the time to let ourselves see the joy that's there, the sacred gift that the Lord has given us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you see the course. We thank you so much that you empower and enable us to run it well, that you have given us all that we need to finish it, Lord. And we thank you that when we get to that finish line, we walk straight into your arms, into our inheritance, into eternity with you, which is the greatest comfort and peace that we will ever, ever, ever know. We thank you so much for that guarantee, Lord. I pray for each of us that you would help us to run well, that you would help us to recognize the moments of our lives as the place where we build the quality of our marathon, Lord. I pray that you would help us to redeem the time, to see it as sacred, and to live our lives unto you in every last thing that we do, to bring heaven here on earth, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.